0: You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. I don't know if you've ever heard of Gene Weingarten. You've probably read one of his columns in a newspaper Um, somewhere. He was a columnist at the Washington Post, syndicated all across the country, all over America. Uh, Quite a comedian, pretty funny guy. He was kind of like Louis Grizzard used to be in Atlanta for the Atlanta Constitution. He wanted to just kind of run an experiment, so he got a violinist. He stood the violinist outside the metro station there in Washington, D.C., and uh, for about 43 minutes, he would play uh, six classical pieces, six beautiful classical pieces, you know, by Brahms, by Beethoven, by Mozart. He'd play these six pieces. In that 43 minutes that he stood there, they counted 1,097 people walking by. Not a single person stopped. A few people walked by, I think, and threw a dollar or two in his violin case that was there. I think in that 45 minutes, he raised somewhere around 32 bucks. Uh, And I want you to listen to what Weingarten said. He, He wrote in his article, he said, no one knew it, but the fiddler standing against a bare wall outside the metro in an indoor arcade at the top of the escalator was one of the finest classical musicians in the world. His name was Joshua Bell. He was playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. And no one stopped. No one noticed. No one really paid any attention. Joshua Bale is one of the world's leading violinists. He plays on a Stradivarius made in the 1600s, valued at somewhere around three and a half to four million dollars. And do you know how much money he makes? They put $32 in the violin case where he was. He makes, on the average, in excess of $1,000 a minute. A minute. And yet the world was after the routine and running after the ordinary and headed toward the mundane and could not appreciate and did not appreciate and didn't even stop to think about who this was and what was taking place right there. I'm afraid that so many of us do that in our Christian lives. We are just headed off in our routine, following our schedule, wrapped up in the mundane of every single day and we miss the moment of the majestic because we simply never pay attention to what's going on spiritually. Now that's what Jude is saying as he wraps this up, this little epistle that we've been looking at now for seven weeks, uh, these 25 verses, he comes down to talk about the final two things that you and I must do if we're going to contend for the faith. The leading verb in this entire epistle in these 25 verses is contend for the faith. And he comes down, you remember, he talks about all of these false teachers who have infiltrated the fellowship, and they've come in, and they're trying to pull everybody off in this direction, or off in that direction, or to follow this agenda, or to follow that agenda, and he comes and he says, there's only one agenda to follow. He's going to give you this in these last four verses. You remember he's been talking about these men, those that come in, those that slip in, those that come in and saddle up next to you. And they build a relationship in in an effort to try to move you to following what they have for you and not what the Word of God, not what Christ has for you. And so he comes in verse 17, and in verse 17 he says, You had better guard yourself. And not only had you better guard yourself, but you'd better guide yourself. He comes in verse 20 to tell him that. You'd better guide yourself into the things that are going to keep you spiritually strong. And he says, listen now, as you're guarding yourself and guiding yourself, there are two things you must do if you're going to contend for the faith. So we ask, what is contending for the faith? What does he mean to contend for the faith? He means these two things, witnessing And worshiping. Nothing else takes precedent over that agenda in the church or in the Christian life. Witnessing and worshiping, missions and praise, those two things. And so Jude comes as he closes out this little epistle. It's so grave, it's so. Deep. It's so dark in points that he moves honestly from the depths of the domain of darkness where fallen angels are confined by chains of darkness. He moves from that all the way up to these ethereal celestial heights of the brilliance of, uh, uh, of God, uh, uh, the, the king, and the sovereign of everything that there is. These last two verses, in my opinion, happen to be what I think, personally, is the greatest doxology in the New Testament. I I don't know of anything. You know, there are the heights of the eighth chapter of Romans. There are others. There's the Christological passage in in Colossians. There are all of these great high watermarks, but I'm going to tell you, some of these last two verses here, I, I don't have the ability to preach them. Uh, So I'm going to rip through them really fast and kind of end. But I don't have the ability to preach them. This is just simply inspired, majestic writing. And that's all you can do is just read it. But I want to show you what he's saying. He's saying this. You and I have a commission to contend for the gospel by a conviction of living out the gospel. We have a commission to contend for the faith by a conviction to live out the faith. How do we contend for the gospel? Number one, we contend for the gospel by being a witness of the gospel. We, we, are, a, we are to contend for the gospel by witnessing. Now, this is missions week and I want you to look at what he says in these next to the last two in the two verses next to the last two verses in verse uh, 22 and verse 23. He's really talking about missions. Now, these two verses are one sentence. Let me read them to you. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, you say, what is that? That's a sentence right there, but it has three imperatival clauses, It has three clauses that make up this one sentence, and they're all imperative. That is, they're all a command. He says, I am commanding you to do this, I'm commanding you to do this, and I'm commanding you to do this. That's the word of God speaking to us. It's not just Jude. This is God's word, and here are three commands that he comes and he gives to us. Now, you remember, if you looked at this, you remember you've gone through this whole theme right here, reoccurring theme of the fallenness of man. There were the Hebrews that fell in verse 5. There were the angels that fell in verse 6. There were the cities that fell in verse 7. There was was Cain, and there was Balaam, and there was Korah. All of these who are falling, and and, uh, he comes and he says right here, this is what we do in a fallen world. This is what we do in a world that is fallen away, in a world that is in sin. This is what we do in the midst of a church that is being inundated by those who are trying to distract us to get involved with other things. We come back to the two things we're to do. One is to witness, we'll get to the other in a moment. We are to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, look, he tells you who to do that with. Watch this, verse 22. The first of all, we're to share with the doubting and have mercy on some who are doubting. Now, who are these? Well, most likely these are people that are in the church that know Christ. Uh, I, I would say that they are saved. They trusted Christ. But there's a doubting that has grown up in their thinking. There is a confusion that has clouded their thinking. They have listened to people that have come into the church who are running off after this thing or that thing and they're drawing them away from the gospel saying, "This is here, I read this book, we've got to be doing this over here that this book is talking about or this author is talking about or this person on television or this person at this retreat or or somebody at some school somewhere said something and I think we ought to run off after that. I watch Christians all the time do that. Yes, yes I do, yes I do. And I tell you, it breaks my heart. It hurts me because they're influencing the weak. They're influencing those that are doubting. They're confused. Usually people that are on the edge of the fellowship. They come to church occasionally. Uh, they're, They're not too involved in a life group, but they've got a collection of friends and they don't really know what the Bible says. They don't spend time in Scripture. They don't spend time trying to understand or study the Word of God. Uh, uh, They've never never listened to enough of it to begin to understand what the Gospel is all about and what God is telling us. And so they hear this voice and that voice and they're impressed with this personality and they're impressed with that personality and they're caught up in doubts. And I'm talking about just crazy. Do you know how many times I've been asked through the years, well Somebody was telling me that the Bible has a secret code. There's a secret code to the Bible. I said, you have got to be kidding me. I said, he gives you the word of God to be clear. You understand what's happening, what's required of you, what God is all about, who Jesus is. There's no secret code there. Confess Jesus Christ and be saved. That's not a secret I have others, I've had others, and it comes in cycles because these things come out. What about these hidden, what about these lost books of the Bible? I understand they're lost, but there ain't but 66 of them. All of them right there. Not one of them lost. You got it in your hand. It sits in your house. That's the only library you need. You got 66 books in the only library you'll ever need, and it's right there. I get all kinds of stuff like that all the time. Well, what about this? Or what about that? Or what about something else? And I want to tell you what's the truth. You get to the place where you just want to say, come on and get real. Grow a little bit. Walk out and get a little depth to your life. Get into the Word of God. But do you know what? Now, listen, this may not convict a single one of you people here, but it just worked me over for the last week, okay? And he tells me this, be merciful with them. Be merciful. Be patient with these people that have not matured. Be slow. Walk with them. Care for them. Love on them. Don't get exasperated. I'm te- Okay, listen. I am confessing. I'm down here at the altar. I'm confessing for me. Now, that may not speak to your heart, but I want to tell you, after 40-some-odd years in the ministry, I just feel like looking at them and say, Enough with all this ludicrous stuff, then I have to repent, you know, and say I'm wrong because the word of God tells me, take these people and it doesn't matter if they exasperate me, get over it. You be merciful with them. You care for them. You love them. You walk with them. You be gentle. You shepherd them. Now, I'm I'm just telling you that you don't have preachers stand up here and tell you where they struggle. That's an area where I struggle. And so I'm just confessing before you and the Lord. I'm glad I got that taken care of, okay? now I've done it and everything. But that's what he's telling us. You have somebody like that, and you're like, I've got a sister-in-law like that. I've got a brother-in-law like that. I've got a cousin that's that way. I've got a neighbor that's constantly, and I keep telling them, get in the word, get in the word, get in the church, get in a life group where they actually teach the word and they don't just socialize. Get in a church where somebody will deal with a passage of Scripture. But he says, do this. This is who you bear witness to. This is who you share with. You have mercy on them. You be patient and loving with them. Okay? Now I'm going to get on you. <laughs> I've, done got, I've gotten on myself now. Now let me, let me just move to the next one here. Look at what he says here. He comes now to these that are desperate. He says there are those that are desperate by saving others, snatching them out of the fire. Now, who is he talking about? He's talking about those that are lost, but he's not talking about those that are saved and those that are lost. He's talking about those that are lost, and there's an urgency because they've never heard. This is the missions aspect of it. There are those that have never heard. We're not talking about folks that live in America that have the gospel preached on every street corner, that can hear it on the radio and the television and on live stream and on everywhere else who have just simply said, not for me, not right now, I'll do it another day, I'll think about it another time. I'm not interested in it. People who hear the gospel over and over and over over and have simply walked away from it saying no no not not doing that he's talking about those who have an urgency to hear because they've never heard we're not talking about saved in law we're talking about people who've never even received the word before we're talking about those that are in the 1040 window There's a window that stretches from Portugal and Spain and sweeps down across the north of Africa, across the Middle East, all the way through India and into the Philippines. All that 1040 window there, where there are some 6,000 plus people groups, people groups who have never heard the name Jesus in their own language. They've heard Trump, they've heard Biden, they've heard Putin. They've heard Obama. They've heard Bush. Has that done them any good? But they've never heard the name Jesus. Nobody's ever translated the gospel into their language. Nobody has ever gone in and preached in their language, in their heart. Nobody's ever gone in with an interpreter and been able. Over 6,000 people, groups in this world that have never heard the name Jesus Christ. There's an urgency there. That's why we're doing this week. That's what this week is all about. Is God calling us every single Christian is to be a missionary? You know what, I can't go overseas. Listen, you can go next door. But some of us can go overseas. Some of us can go to a place where they've never heard the gospel before. I'm praying for our young people today. I'm praying for our young people that would feel God's call to do just that. Debbie tells me, told me, uh, that God called her when she was 12 years old to the mission field. (laughs) This is her mission field right here. God was preparing her heart when she was 12 years of age to be a pastor's wife, to be my wife. And I have to say, there's not a better, I don't know of a better pastor's wife anywhere than the pastor's wife you've got. I want to tell you this, you probably don't realize it as a congregation, but that woman prays for you probably more than I do. And she prays earnestly every day for the ministry of this church and for the people of this church. There are children here that can understand this and I pray that God will call some of our children out for his work I pray for the teenagers of this congregation. I pray that there are some teenagers that are very seriously minded about, the, uh, about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ that God will lay on their heart that he's calling them not just to ministry, but he's calling them to missions. There's some of you young couples that are in here. Listen, in your 20s, in your 30s, it, it's a perfect time for you to go to a place and plant your life and stay for the next 10, 15, 20 years and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can do it now as senior adults. It's come to the place now. I had a lady who was 71 years of age in Jacksonville, Florida, who went to Taiwan as a missionary, 71 years of age. She had a PhD in counseling, and she went, and her ministry was to all of the Southern Baptist missionaries that were living there. She did their counseling. She met with them and counseled them and cared for them and pastored and shepherded those people. Ross and Brenda are going to head off to Moldova. You know where Moldova is? It's plumb right up next to Ukraine. you know they have a breakaway state in the eastern part of Moldova where there are 10,000 Russian troops that are there, uh, that are Russians there, and they recognize that as being part of Russia? Let me tell you something. They're going... All of us can do something. All of us are called to be missionaries. All of us are called with something that God has placed in our hands to do, and we can do it, and that's what he says. Go, snatch them out of the fire because they've never heard. They've never had the opportunity. Many people here have heard over and over again. Let me tell you, it takes something to go to a place and share with people who've never heard before. They should have the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Julius Hickerson decided to do just that. He had spent years in school. He graduated college. He went to uh, medical school. He went through all of that, then residency, and opened up his own practice. But down in his heart, Julius knew that God was calling him. He knew where he was calling him. He knew that God was calling him to the jungles of Columbia, South America. And so eventually it was just so great, and he was just so dissatisfied. He closed up everything and told his family what he was doing. And you know what his family said? You know what his friends said? You're throwing your life away, you're wasting your life. Do you realize what you could make if you stayed here as a medical doctor? You could do ministry here. Why do you think you can't do ministry here? You can tell people about Jesus here. Why do you have to go to the jungles of South America to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? And all Julius could do is say, I know this is what God's called me to do. So he goes through the IMB, the International Mission Board, and they appoint him to the jungles of Columbia, South America. And he goes there, and with his medical degree, he sets up a little clinic, and he sees patients. He sees people in these small tribes out in the jungle, and he shares Jesus Christ. He's there for an extended period of time, and he has shared the gospel and shared the gospel and shared the gospel But he doesn't have one single convert to show for all the time and energy and effort and the years that he was there. Not one single person came to Jesus Christ. Julius began to think, I've wasted my life. They're right. I've wasted my life. I've been here. I don't have a single convert. I thought we'd have a church by now, but I don't have a single convert that has trusted Christ. And he says, maybe they're right. Maybe maybe this was a waste. Maybe this was... Uh, Just throwing my life and my gifts and my talent away. They were loading up a plane to go and fly further down into the jungle to go to some tribes where there was a medical need. And of course, they'd never heard the gospel of Christ. They loaded the plane up. Julius got on the plane. If you're ahead of the story, it never made it. It crashed in the jungle. Julius Hickerson was killed. Thinking that he had never reached anybody for Jesus Christ. Several years later, the IMB sent another missionary into the jungle. They sent that missionary down to basically the very tribes that Hickerson was going to when his plane went down. And when that missionary got there, he was shocked. He was stunned to find Christians there. He found people who had trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He not only found that, he found a church. And he not only found a church, he found out that that church had sent out some of those from that tribe to other tribes, and they had started churches in the other tribes. And the missionary from the International Mission Board, our Southern Baptist missionary, said, I'm I'm stunned. How did y'all hear the gospel? We were convinced no one here knew the gospel. How did you hear? They said, the book. He said, what book are you talking about? He said, the book that was written in our language. He said, we read the book, and we read of Jesus, and we read of God, and we came to Christ, and we trusted in him, and we would pass the book around, and everybody would pass the book around, and they would read the book. He's talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Gospels, and they would get saved. They would come to Christ. They would surrender their lives to Christ, and lo and behold, they must have read the book of Acts. Where they would go out and share the gospel, so they went out and started sharing with these other tribes. And he, he, he the, the missionary, couldn't believe it when he said, "Where's the book?" And somebody brought the book to him, and he opened the book, and there, in the flyleaf of the book, was written the name Julius Hickerson, who by hand had translated the gospel into their language. And he thought he had wasted. His life. You never waste your life when you give it to Jesus. You never waste a witness when you witness for Jesus. Let me show you the last thing. The third thing is this. If you're there, he comes and he says this. He says, here are, the, here are those that you've got the doubting. You've got those that are desperate. They've never heard. Now you've got the defiled. And he comes and he says, Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some now, here it is, the defile. Have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is this. He says, you've got friends that are involved in a lifestyle of open sin and rebellion against God. Most likely he was referencing sexual sins, peoples whose passions were driving them much the way America is today. Everything today, if it's not about sex, then it's about money. And if it's not about money, then it's about sex. And he's talking about those who have this driving passion for that which is ungodly and immoral and out of God's will. And he says, you need to have mercy on them. You know, sometimes we can be so critical of sinners that we just convince ourselves they don't even deserve to hear the gospel. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. He says, you have mercy on them. You share the gospel with them. You share the witness with them. You share the Lord Jesus Christ with them. But he said, you'd better be careful that you don't get the stain of that sin on you while you're doing it. In other words, You've got some friends that you're close to that you'd better watch yourself with. Now, when I read that and writing this sermon, I thought of a person uh, whose name was Bob Harrington. When I was a boy, when I was, you know, 12, 13 years of age, man, I used to listen to Bob Harrington records all the time. Now, you probably have never heard of Bob Harrington. Bob Harrington was a great evangelist and he had an office on Bourbon Street. He was known as the chaplain of Bourbon Street. He'd walk into bars and strip joints and he'd start preaching the gospel in there. They'd throw him out, he'd go back in. They'd throw him out, he'd go back in. He was leading prostitutes and pimps and alcoholics and drug-addicted people to Jesus Christ all over the place until one day, in the midst of doing all that, He committed adultery and took up with prostitutes himself. He's the guy that married Larry Flint, the guy who was the publisher of Hustler Magazine, married him off to the woman that he married. And I read an article on that marriage, and I thought to myself, how could a man who had followed Jesus Christ be a part of a, it wasn't a ceremony, it was an event. You couldn't call it a ceremony. It was an event that was essentially an orgy. And in the midst of the orgy, he marries this. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my Lord, have mercy. That's exactly what Jude is saying. You get so close to these people who are polluted and stained by sin, and it begins to rub off on you. And you begin to get caught up in that lifestyle. You'd better be sure that with the friends that you have, you're having a more of an impact on them than they're having on you. But he says, have mercy on them. I, let me finish the story. I'm, I'm thankful and glad to say that Bob Harrington came back in repentance to Jesus Christ very publicly uh, before he passed away, before he died. Uh, he repented, and I'm convinced that God forgave him of it because God says, you know, Repent and be saved. Come back to me. Repent. And he did just that, but that's what he's saying right here. He's saying, you have mercy on those that are living in open, rebellious sin against God, and you share the gospel with them. There's the word. How do I contend in a day when people are going in the opposite direction of the faith? How do I contend for the faith? How do I do that? By witnessing I'm to stand up and be a witness for Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter the call, doesn't matter what they think. I'm to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you the second thing, and the second thing is this it's worship. It's what we're doing right now. It's what we're to do in here. Now, let me show you as you get to verse 24. He's through this whole thing talked about, these men, verse 8, these men, verse 10, verse 12, these men, verse 14, these men, verse 18, the ungodly. They're ungodly deeds done in an ungodly way, ungodly sinners. Verse 16, these. Then he transitions this with these reflexive, reflexive pronouns, but you, verse 17, verse 20, but you. Now look at verse 24, now to him. He's moved from the world now to us, now to him. All of this now shifts. Everything is lifted up now, and we're looking at God Almighty. Here it is, these things that are to come to him. He's gone from the depths of darkness here to this celestial heights, this ethereal majesty, that which is so bright, this doxology, The greatest in the New Testament, he comes now to give praise to God. Why do we give praise to God? Why is worship so important? Well, look at this. Now to him who is able. Now let me just stop there before I get into these four things. He who is able. Now to him who is able. Present active participle. It's not he who was able or he who used to be able. Or it's not the future tense. It's not he who will be able. It is the present active participle who is in any moment you call now, God is able. Have you noticed the power of God through, through Jude? I've tried to point it out as we've gone through. He, he is the God who had the power to take these Hebrews out of Egypt. He's the God who had the power to take these fallen angelic beings and throw them into the abyss and lock them up until the day of judgment. He's the God who has the power to take Sodom and Gomorrah and overthrow it in a minute. He did in a minute what Putin had been able to do in Kiev in the last four days. With all the power of a superpower, God has the ability. He is able. He is able to what? Keep you. That's what he says right here. He is able. Now to him, this praise is going to go to him. Why? Because he's able to keep me. Keep me from what? Stumbling, falling, losing. He's able to keep me from sin. He's able to keep me from falling into sin. Now, he's not going to force you, but the power of God is able to keep you out of sin. He's able to do that. He's able to keep your salvation. You don't have to worry about losing your salvation. He keeps it. I Listen. He keeps that which I've committed unto him against that day. He keeps it. He's the God who has all the power to be sure that one day I'm going to be ultimately saved at the end of life. He's the God who keeps us, and we need to be kept. He has that ability. He has that power. But now listen, he keeps us from what? Now watch this. He keeps us so that he might present us. He presents us. I praise him not only because he has the ability to keep me, but he's also got the ability to present me, to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Do you ever think about standing before God? That's a good thing to think about. One day I'm going to stand in the presence of almighty God. I'm going to stand before God, and we often, when we think that, and you say, well, no, Pastor, I'm just going to be so embarrassed. I'm going to be so ashamed, and I'm just, I don't know that I can even look him in the face. He's so whole. I know what my life has been like. No, you're not. No, you're not. We say that out of a, an attempt to be humble, but let me tell you something. He's going to present you. Look at the, Do you see the text? He's going to present you two ways, blameless and with great joy. Some of y'all are going to be smiling in that moment. He hadn't done it in three and a half years, but you're going to be smiling in that moment. He's able to present you blameless. Don't ever underestimate the power of the blood. It is not only sufficient, it is more than sufficient. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. It made me blameless. It made you blameless. You will stand one day before Jesus Christ and because of the work and the blood of Jesus Christ, you will stand there blameless, listen, and with great joy. You'll be so excited you're there and you missed hell, you won't know what to do. He's going to cause you to do that. Listen, that's why we praise him and he saves us. He comes. Look in verse twenty-five to the only. Now some translations have "wise God." Who has a translation that says "wise God"? I, I like that. It. It. All of y'all are going like, "I'm." I'm look, it's okay. It's all right. Uh, it's a great translation. I like it. It comes from a ladder a later manuscript, earlier manuscripts don't have it in there, but he is our wise God. He's the God who is wise unto salvation, the Bible tells us. To the only, and I'll put it in there, wise God our Savior. Now, isn't that interesting that he calls God our Savior? Because we generally think of Jesus Christ as our Savior. But let me tell you something. Where did salvation begin? With God. God the Father long to save man do you realize and you see who it's through through jesus christ our lord how does he save you through jesus christ god our savior through jesus christ do you realize that god did that in eternity past God in eternity past before he ever created Adam, before he ever took the bone in the flesh of Adam's side and created Eve, before he ever made this earth, this universe, God knew that we would sin. And God said, from this point, before it ever, ever is born, I'm gonna provide salvation. Listen, I'm gonna fall out up here. That's a word. He is our Savior. Why are you here today? To praise that. To praise him for our salvation. Now watch, number four flows out of all that and that is he reigns over us. That's what he does when he comes here and he says be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. He says, listen, these four things... Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. You don't just say that to anybody. Those things are true of only one person, and that person is God. And he says, that's what we do when we come to the place, listen, that God has snatched us out of the fire of hell and that he keeps us from stumbling. He's able to hold on to us and our salvation, and he's going to make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless. And with unbelievable joy, listen, He is God our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, glory, majesty, dominion, authority. That's what we give to Him in praise for what He's done. We're here to worship Jesus Christ. You're not here to be entertained. We've come together. You're as much a leader in this as anybody else that stands on this stage up here. You are a leader in this. We all lead when we worship. That's why you should never stand there with a closed mouth. That's why you should never sit there with a detached heart, is that we're here to worship Now, I want to just show you one last thing in all of this. Listen, we're here to worship him. That's what we'll do for all of eternity. Have you ever wondered what God's going to be doing all that time? What's God going to be doing? Just sitting there on a throne? Let me take you back to the little prophecy of Zephaniah. Four books back from the end the end of the Old Testament It's Malachi, right before Malachi is Zechariah, right before Zechariah is Haggai, and right before Haggai is Zephaniah. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I want you to go with me. I want you just to turn to one last passage. Zephaniah chapter 3, short little prophecy of a little known prophet. We very seldom look at Zephaniah, but I want you to see something here. Because he tells you what God's going to do over us. Listen to this. Verse 17, while we're giving praise to him, and we will, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 tells us that. Revelation chapter 7 tells us that. All of that that's going to go on in heaven there. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and tribe and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hand. They cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We're there singing to our God. Who, Who are these? These are they who have come out of great tribulation. These are they who've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. These are they who have come out of great sorrow into great jubilation. These are the ones who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We're there giving praise to our God. And what's God going to be doing? Look at this, verse verse 17 of chapter 3 of Zephaniah. The Lord your God is in your midst. God is in our midst. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. Now, what does that mean? It means there are those moments when you are so overcome by joy and by love and by admiration that that you can't even form a word. You can't say anything. I'm so overcome, I don't know what to say. He says there's coming a moment when God will be so overcome with his love for us. Look, but he will burst forth. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I'm going to read you Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this. I think that's the most wonderful text in the whole Bible. God himself singing. I can imagine when the world was made, the morning stars sang together shouting for joy, but God didn't sing. He said it was very good, that's all. There was no song, but when all the chosen race When every people, listen, when every nation and tribe and people and tongue, when every chosen race shall meet around the throne, the joy of the eternal Father shall swell so high that God will burst into infinite song. Have you ever stopped in your life to think, what does God's voice sound like? Will sound like somebody raking nails across a chalkboard compared to the voice of Almighty God. When we gather in that day around His throne, the Father will stand up and He will well up with such joy in the Father's heart that He will burst out in song. And for eternity, we will listen to God sing over His joy that you're saved. Not surprised that you're saved, but he will sing with joy, satisfied that the work is done. Let's stand. All of us standing. Oh, boy. What a moment of glory that we'll be able to shout back in song to him. And he will be singing over us. How about you? Where are you in your relationship to Jesus Christ this morning? Have you ever trusted him as your Lord and Savior? If you're here this morning and you have to be honest to say, I've never really done that. I've never come to him in faith. I've never come to him trusting I've prayed a moment or two in an emergency, but I've never come and said, Lord, here's my life. Take my life. Why not right now? Why not in this moment? Listen, he says God is in our midst. God is here. Right here, right now, in this moment, you you simply say in your heart, Lord Jesus, be Lord of my life. I confess my sin to you. I believe, Jesus, that you are the God that died on the cross for me and that you were raised from the dead to give me eternal life. And I take my trust, I take my faith, and I place it in you. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, come on here to the front. Just slip out from wherever you are. Come on and meet me right here at the front. All you've got to do is just walk up and say, Pastor, I prayed the prayer. Or just come up and say, Pastor, I want to pray the prayer. Or just come up and say, I want to know Jesus. Just come on up right now. Just slip out from wherever you are. Husband, wife, grandparent, couple, teenager, child. Just come up and make that decision this morning. Others of you need to join this church. Others of you need to follow Jesus Christ in believer's baptism. Some of you, God's calling to ministry. Others of you, God's calling you to the altar. I don't know what's going on in your life. Maybe in your life you're saying, I've not been a witness for Christ for years or ever. Let me tell you, you need some holy boldness. Why don't you get on your face before God and ask him for it? Father, in these moments... I pray that you would honor yourself and bring those who need to come. For I pray it in Jesus' name. You come right now. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.